Hello and welcome to the Guest and Request Programme on BCR. I'm Edward Spain and... I'm Jack Burke. And today we'll be joined by Gordon Darcy. We'll be talking about his incredible rugby career as well as listening to some of his favourite tunes. Now, Gordon, you were born in Ferns in 1980 and as you understand, there wasn't a huge rugby culture within the town. So I'm wondering, did you begin rugby when you joined Clongos or was there a culture in your family? Like, did your dad encourage it? Um, yeah, I would have played hurling um, growing up in Wexford. Um, so when I was going to school and uh, Kildare, um, I uh, didn't really play hurling. So I kind of pretty much started when I went to uh, went to secondary school. Now uh, you were actually gifted athlete. So like, were there any pressures to play a different sport like Gaelic, or were your parents happy for you just to chase rugby and keep playing? Um, well, so I would have primarily played hurling uh, when I was younger, and like I would have played everything. Would have done athletics. Um, football, Gaelic football, um, golf, tennis, squash, pretty much anything. Um, I was always very, very active. Um, so it wasn't really something that I set out to pursue. Um, it just happened, like, you know, as I, as I got older, um, started getting selected in, um, Leinster and Irish squads. And, um, then the game went professional in 95 and, um, I was offered a contract in 98. Right. So. In June '98, you were like offered a call up to Ireland just a few days short of leaving, sir. You decided to turn it down. Like, did it ever cross your mind to take the call up and try repeating the next year? Or uh, not really, to be honest. The thought of repeating the leaving cert because at that stage I put in a fair, <laughs> a fair amount of work um, into the leaving cert and had a good chat with my dad and um, we kind of decided that the best course of action was to sit the leaving cert and then um, and then take a take up a professional contract when uh, when I finished the leaving cert. Um, so it wasn't really a tough decision. So did you always? Uh, what, what was your ambition to do in college uh, since you were uh, doing the leaving cert? Um, to be honest, I I did exactly what you're not supposed to do with the CAO. I filled out like really the worst was the worst uh, worst uh, CAO application ever, um, and I kind of dropped out of college. I actually went back to college when I was 28 um, to do economics. Um, I was uh, a boy, um, you know. I loved it. I, I landed into professional sport because um, at that stage probably wasn't for me. Uh, so in June 1999, you were playing for Lansdowne, like you are playing amateur rugby. Uh, you weren't even 20 yet and you were called up to uh, play in the World Cup in Wales. How surreal was that, just considering you were relatively unknown at the time? Well, I was still, like, you know, I was a full professional at that stage. Oh, really? Um, so I was uh, playing for Leinster. Um, and was in the, so I was in the Irish squad from kind of June of 98 at that stage. And then through, uh, you know, a couple of good performances and a bit of luck, I got into the squad in 99. Um, a little bit, it was very, it was very, very, um, very nice to get in. It probably was a little bit too soon for me. Um, and, uh, while it was a lovely, uh, you know, it was a great experience to get my first cap. Um, the enormity and the responsibility of what it was to represent your country was probably a little bit lost on me, and you know it would take me a few more years to get um, to get capped again. So um, it was a good learning, it was a good learning experience, and I learned an awful lot during the the you know the the following years where I was um, probably not selected for Ireland, and I had to discover the hard work that was required to play at that level. But there been any like dressing room figures playing for Ireland at that time kind of helped you? Kind of you learn from that helped shape your career. 
Um, at that time, yeah, there's a, co- a couple of um, Conor O'Shea was playing in the Irish team at that at that point, and he was, I was playing fullback at the time, and he was a very good uh, influence on me. Um, to be honest, the, there was not so much players. Um, some coaches were very very important to me uh, at around that time, and Declan Kidney was the under 20s coach, and Matt Williams came in as the uh, Leinster coach with, with Mike Ruddock. And they kind of gave me a little bit of tough love to help get my career back on uh, track. So you said you were a fullback. So kind of when did you switch into inside centre, and what coach kind of made that decision for you? Um, we're kind of fast forwarding a few more years now. Gary Ella is the coach um, uh, in Leinster. He was coach for um, just under a season. Um, we had a bit of an injury crisis in Leinster, and I was playing on the wing. And as we were walking out to the pitch, Gary turned around to me and said, "Do you fancy a trot at 13?" And I played uh, 13 for kind of the next 10 months and then uh, kind of a tactical shift into 12. And uh, so I was about 24 when that happened. Okay, so now I'm going to your first song, uh, This Time Tomorrow, uh, from The Kings. Is there a particular reason you chose this song or is it just one of your favourites? Um, it's always been um, a song that I've enjoyed and liked. Um, but it's a song I, uh, my, my daughter, when she was born, um, seemed to like to dance to. Um, so that's why it kind of came, came to came to mind. Um, quite like the lyrics and everything are quite uh, quite nice. Um, so yeah, I just that was a that was a, that was a song uh, pretty much reminds me of my daughter. Okay, uh, we'll play that now.
So I'm going to a point in your uh, in your career when you hit a crossroads. Uh, after getting into Ireland at 19 uh, and being in the spotlight, you were told your career was on the line if you didn't shape up your attitude. Uh, was there a person or uh, was there just an event that made you turn turn the corner and keep the career on the tracks? Well, the time probably wasn't the most dedicated of uh, rugby players um, or professionals. And I was kind of given the ultimatum by Matt Williams to... Uh, Kind of get myself in gear or to, uh, that they wouldn't contract me again. So that was a big wake up call. I kind of, that started, uh, started me on a, um, a way that I was going to get myself, uh, into, into line and I was going to become the best player that I could be. And if I got another chance, I'd probably, uh, move both hands. So having like, so having got back into Leinster start, uh, starting 15, uh, you and Brian O'Driscoll kind of make, kind of struck up the iconic partnership. Uh, was it tough to get along with Brian, or did you guys just click from day one? Um, well, we we played against each other in school right away, right away through. So uh, I was um, very similar outlook into life and into rugby. So no, it was, uh, it was an easy enough one. Uh, so after winning the 2002 Celtic League, Leinster went on a six-year trophy drought and kind of became known as a champagne team who could be scintillating when they wanted to, but they just uh, they just buckled in big games like against Perpignan in 02 and Munster in 06. These matches have a big effect on Leinster's weekly performance, or just try to block them out and keep going. Um, well, it, it's a you know at the time they're very very tough losses because you could see the uh, Munster went on to win that year I think, and um, you know the Perpignan one it was a it was an easier road to the final. But I think in the bigger picture, when you look back, they were very very important in the future success of the squad and of the of the club. Um, because we had gotten a taste of that failure at a at a at a high level, and we knew there's enough players there that wanted to win, um, and you'd use experiences like that to try and get the important wins over the line. Uh, so in 2009, Leinster like finally turned the corner in Europe. Michael Cheka, yet and you had to dig deep in a lot of matches. Um, of course, Hyde would be beating monster semi-final because that signaled the uh, change in the guard of dominant force in Irish rugby. So, kind of, what attitudes or uh, factors has changed that season? Ah, uh, like it was, what I was in that season, the thing would um, change in any team that probably takes three or four years. Um, the, you know, some big signings, we had Issa, we had Rocky, um, had come in at that stage, and um, we had a, we had a tie five that could compete with anyone in the, anyone in the um, European, in the European uh, Cup. Um, but I think, as well, I think as well, there's a couple of, Important wins on the road for us as a team and as a squad. Uh, we won in Musgrave Park in December, uh, and it was a nothing match, but it was a full blood match. And we actually pulled together and we played, uh, we played and we won. And we found a way to win, and that gave a good, I think, for a lot of players, the belief that we could beat a team like Munster on their own patch, and then that carried us a long way in the in the in in the championship and in the Heineken Cup. Uh, okay, so now we're going to play your second song, uh, Angelis by Elliot Smith. Uh, did this song have a special meaning to you, or uh, or is there any spe- specific reason you chose it? Um, yeah, it's, um, it's from the <laughs> from a movie uh, growing up that I, that I loved, uh, Good Will Hunting. And um, yeah, it's just the song I loved it in that, and um, just again the melody, and the, I really just I really enjoy that. Okay, uh, we'll play that now.
Someone's always coming out here, trailing someone new kill. Says I seen a picture on a hundred dollar bill. What's a game? Chance to hear him as one of real skill. So glad to meet you, Angelus. Picking up the ticket shows there's money to be made. Go on, lose the gamble. That's the history of the trade. Don't start me trying now. Uh huh, uh huh, uh huh. Some all over in Angelus. I can make you satisfied in everything you do. All your secret wishes could right now be coming true. Be forever with my poison arms around you. No one's gonna fool around with us. No one's gonna fool around with us. So glad to meet you, Angela. So in 2009, uh, 2010, sorry, uh, Michael Checker left, and he was replaced by Joe Schmidt. Uh, Joe had previously been an assistant coach, and Lance gave him his first head coach assistant. Was the, uh, the team fully behind Joe from the start, um, or were they a bit skeptical of an unknown uh, assistant from Claremont coming in uh, to try to take a team who had ambitions of winning a European Cup? Uh, no, Joe sold everybody on, on what he was trying to do almost immediately. Um, phenomenal man, manager, and um, brilliant rugby tactician. So now he had everybody, uh, he had everybody now in the hands very quickly. Do you think Joe had like an influence on Leinster now with Leo Cullen being the coach? Do you think Joe kind of shaped the way Leo, uh, Leo coaches? Yeah, I think so. I think he gave him a good, um, a good start on how like, being a, a provincial coach is very different to being a national coach. Spend an awful lot of time with them and. I think the most important job that a provincial coach has is maintaining the culture and, um, and making sure that people are, their efforts feel valued and how you keep a squad of almost 50 players happy on a, on a, on a 12 month basis is incredibly hard. Um, so yeah, and I think Leo and, um, Leo and Joe would have had a very similar outlook on that. Do you think for you, the Leinster guys, having Joe previous as coach helped later on in his success with Ireland? Um, um, I think Joe being one of the best coaches I've ever played under was probably the, the most important factor within in, uh, being successful in Ireland. Um, but it was a great group of players that you had. You still had O'Connell as well. You had, you know, a sector, uh, uh, an emerging Conor Murray, like the quality of players with, with, uh, with the raw materials that he had to work with were still phenomenally good. So 
Um, I think it was a good group of players with a fantastic coach as well. Uh, so after the 2011 and 12 Heine Cup victories, in 2013, Leinster had a poor season by the high standards set in previous seasons, not progressing from the Heine Cup rules. Now, I know you still won the Guinness Pro 14 and the uh, Amelin Challenge, but was, uh, was, the year, was the slow start of the season down to Schmidt's message going a bit stale, or was the squad just generally ageing and getting on a bit? I don't think any of those. Um, uh, like, you know, any club is, is very rarely a linear path upwards. You don't just win. You just success isn't success after year, year after year after year. Um, you know, every time, for, you know, there's a great paradox around this where during success you're one step closer to failure and when you're failing you're one, you're one step closer to success. We had, a, you know, back-to-back Heineken Cups and we were targeted by every other team in the in the, in the in the tournament, we didn't have a particularly easy easy draw, um, and we made some mistakes. But then that was a opportunity for us to, you know, to regather and to um, refocus, and uh, and it was a great kick on from for the for the next couple of years. Um, so between 2013 and 2014, uh, some huge squad figures left, like Brian O'Driscoll, Easton Asaba, Johnny Sexton, and Leo Cullen, as well as the coach Joe Schmidt leaving. Do you think this had a big effect on the squad, considering that Leinster, went, uh, Leinster in that period went on to have like a bit of a tough transition period in, uh, in just uh, winning trophies and, uh, and such? Yeah, but I think that, that happens in, in every squad. When you have an actual rotation in, in squads, that you have to, the players come in and they won't have an awful lot of experience, and it takes them time to get you know, 20, 30 caps under their belt and you hope you hope that they have learned from the guys that have left, but they just don't have the experience yet. So it's always a natural, um, a natural progression in any team is that when they do have a significant turnover in players, that they accept that they may not um, be at their best. Um, but at around that same time, you've got Leo now coming in as coaching and he's finding his feet, and he has to um, weather a couple of years where he blows an awful lot of players and gives them experience, but doesn't win a trophy. But then that feeds into the um, you know the the period of uh, performance that we're seeing now. Yeah, uh, so in 2015, you retired after uh, you retired after the season with Leinster, but your original intention uh, was to get back into the Ireland squad and then retire following the 2015 World Cup. But obviously that didn't happen. So could you explain why you decided to retire uh, before the World Cup? Oh uh, yeah, well, I didn't get picked, so that's why I retired. <laughs> And, you know, I was 35, it was probably, you know, the, I had aged a lot, six months, I'd lost a yard of pace, and um, I was technically not able to do what I needed to do on a pitch, and um, that was hard, that was just unfortunate, because six months previously I probably would have got picked for the World Cup, but, um, but as I was saying, time waits for no man, so um, I got a phone call from Joe, after the, about a week before the selection was going to go, and he kind of said, listen, it's not going to happen, and I was fine. It was good at giving them everything, and the great thing about an end like that, it's not career defining, it's just a full stop. Um, so it was, uh, it was, there was one small silver lining I got to bring my daughter to, it was her first game of my last game. Um, so it was, uh, a fit, a fitting end. Okay, uh, now, uh, we'll listen to your next song, Into Your Arms, by the Australian rock band Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. Uh, does this song have a personal meaning to you? No, this is just, um, uh, again, something like a, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, um, this distance, and I can't even remember, um, back in, back in Longos and back in the, back in school days and just out of all of them, just one of the ones that's just through my Spotify and 
came through and just lovely memories popping back. But yeah, just a uh, really like you know, a lot of the songs obviously very kind of folky and very uh, melodic and very relaxed uh, kind of music. Okay, well let's start now. Journey bright and pure 
that you'll keep returning always and evermore into my arms oh lord into my arms oh lord into my arms oh lord into my So now I'd like to bring in Jack, and he's going to talk to you a bit about your international career. Alright, uh, hi Gordon, I'm just going to take over from Edward now to ask you a few, uh, few more questions. So, um, after an early start it took you and Ireland a while to recapture your international form, but in 2004 you did exactly that with Ireland winning the 2004 Triple Crown, and you winning the Player of the Six Nations Award following a public vote. How much of an honour was this considering many fans, uh, some fans rather, had written you off since your early start? Um, yeah, she doesn't really know that I'm not, but uh, there you go. I learned something new every day. Um, like, I had spent, you know, I got, got captain in 2019 at the World Cup and had a few bit part caps in between um, on tours and against, uh, you know, second uh, second tier opposition. Um, so I kind of worked with um, end of that for the previous two years to that point to go and to make sure that mm. if I got another chance in a, in a Irish jersey that I would make sure I took it with both hands and was mentally ready to, to, to take that. So when I got the opportunity to play in that Six Nations, um, I still remember running out of um, that stand and um, my first first start in a in an Irish jersey. And uh, yeah, I just remember being ready uh, in my head and that was reflected on the pitch. Mm, okay. And in the build-up to the 2007 World Cup, uh, Ireland had won three of the last four Triple Crowns and in the midst of a generational team and we're tired to take the next step from the world stage, and we're maybe even outside contenders for the cup. But in the end, Ireland, of course, is not out of the group. And I'm sorry for asking another negative question, but anyway, uh, where do you feel the team? If it anything, do you feel anything went wrong, or uh, we just peaked? You know? I'd say we peaked. I remember we played in that Six Nations in 2007, and we were absolutely firing mm. on all things. We had a beautifully balanced team. Back row was strong. Tight five, Malik Kelly, Paul O'Connell in their in their prime. Yeah. Um, and Donald O'Callaghan in there as well. And yeah, the game plan we had, it um, it was almost perfect, but it was just like May, March, so five months too early, and say when we were we peaked, we just didn't carry that. We weren't able to carry that form into the into the World Cup, and we got a slow start, and uh, we were never able to recover. And it was okay. just the that's just a painful. Brutality of sport, sometimes, you know, you would think, um, you know, because sometimes you play well in the November interna- International, carry that through to the Six Nations, we just weren't able to carry it through for some reason. Thank you. And now, on a more positive note, uh, one of the huge highlights of your career would have been 2009, when Ireland won their first Grand Slam in 61 years. And, of course, there are lots of famous moments, like Bono Gar against Wales. But what was the feeling in camp week to week as the dream became more realistic? Um, yeah, like some of those things, it just, you know, kind of, again, you look back at it through hindsight and think yeah. everything is, um, you kind of go, oh, all the pieces just seemed to fall into, into place. And again, we, you know, Jackie came in, he picked a phenomenal man manager, picked the right players at the right time, um, got us in the right headspace, and probably for the first time, the, the burden of expectation didn't weigh us down, um, and that was, that was good, and we had players coming back from the injury, and, 
and uh, everybody made uh, contributions. Of the, it was spread evenly across the squad, so it was a uh, yeah, it was a good it was a, it was a good. We were playing, we were just playing, we were playing well, and we just yeah, everything just seemed to click. Okay, and um, so in 2011, you travelled to your third World Cup, and Ireland was drawn in a group in Australia. And it was always going to be a tough game, but Ireland pulled out of the bag, claiming a huge victory that let you get to the top of you, the group, and get a favourite draw. But obviously, it didn't go to plan for the loss to Wales. So I'm wondering, was that one of the harder defeats for you to take? Yeah, it probably was. I think, you know, you look at the success that Wales have had under Warren Gaffney, particularly at World Cup, um, they brought a mindset to that and a kind of a, an approach to World Cup that they've had similar success with them in the Six Nations and you know, they they play knockout rugby currently a little bit better than, than, than we did and they were just yeah, they were probably a little bit better prepared and uh, and played that game and uh, uh played that game a little bit better than we did and they probably would have a, a fair bit of regret with that one. Okay. And now finally Following the 2011 World Cup, Ireland went through a tough couple of years, but you finished off your international career with the Six Nations Championship. How satisfying was that, considering the tough times Ireland had gone through? Yeah, I think so. Like I think um, Joe took over in 2013, I think, mm. um, with the Irish team, and we had you know, almost had an Irish game with the All Blacks in, uh, in November. Um, I remember losing that game against the All Blacks, and um, actually had a bet with Johnny Sexton had a bet with me that he beat the All Blacks with the shape of it. And after the match, he just went double or quits with the Six Nations. Yeah. And so there's no problem. But I remember being after that match and how well we played. And I remember a couple of the things that we said to each other after the game. And mm. I knew this was going to be one of those ones where we carried the form into the Six Nations. Um, and I just, because I knew as also after that game that I was never going to play the All Blacks again. Mm. Um, you know, I was 30, I was turning 34, so I knew my time was, my time was here, and it was, I was on, you know, on the, on the last, in the last few years, you know, for the year of my career, um, and to carry that form into the Six Nations, to win, to win the way we did, winning in Paris, they carrying these beautiful walking lines to Sinead. It was it was fantastic. It was, it was a great um, group of players to yeah. win with as well. Yeah, it's a certainly a good note to end on with that, with your, with, you know, your career. But now, we'll now move on to your fourth song, uh, Tiny Dancer by Elton John. So, was there any reason you picked this, or do you just love this classic? Um, again, yeah, like it's just, you know, an, a, an eclectic kind of mishmash of, of, uh, of songs. Mm. Um, I think I watched the, um, the kind of music biopic, uh, biopic of, uh, of Elton John recently enough. Oh, yeah. Um, and again, it's just a, like, it's a fantastic, uh, it's a fantastic, uh, uplifting song. Yeah. Um, and again, yeah, just one of those ones that I would have, you know, listened to regularly and, um, and, and, and enjoyed. Fair enough. So, we will now play Tiny Dance for Elton John.
I'm just going to pass you back to Edward now, who will be asking you a few more questions. Thanks. Uh, okay, Gordon, I just want to uh, chat now about the transition from rugby after retirement. So even though you only retired five years ago, uh, there still weren't the services available to you uh, that players would have today. Uh, was the transition hard for you? Um, uh, like, to be fair, the majority of what was available today was probably when I went there again. Um, you know, there's a rugby going on in the and getting people prepared for, for what and happens after you finish playing rugby. Um, but, you know, but the best in the world is a different transition for, for everybody. Um, you get an injury or a thing, it's a very personal thing, and some things will be good, some things will be bad, and you just kind of, you, you learn, you get on with it, and, um, you know, life has a habit of moving forward, so um, you just, you have to get on with it, and young kids and uh, family and work and everything, so plenty, plenty to keep you busy in a, in a, in a transition like this. Uh, so I know you and your wife run a few businesses, uh, which include like two restaurants and a uh, Pilates school. Did the learning curve of running these businesses uh, help you with the transition from rugby? Um, not massively. Um, I set up a restaurant with a restaurant in the bar with a French school. Um, I mean, I was like as good as you could be good inside the running business and you know, K&L shoes and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I, I sold to him a couple of years ago. Um, and then my wife and I have a, like I said, run a, run a Pilates business, and that's, like, and that is a, it's, you know, something that we play to both our, both our friends, and, you know, it's an SME, and something we both, in, both enjoy and very passionate about, and, uh, which is, uh, you know, certain, certain, um, how do you put it, uh, not, no, you're not that happy, there's a certain amount of, just, you know, you, you have to do, I do a certain amount of uh, business in the, in the back end of it, and, Make sure all the bills are paid and all that and glamorous stuff. My wife makes sure the front of the front of the house is uh, is is strong and you know the COVID at the moment is uh, makes it an interesting time. Uh, so how the business has been getting on uh, throughout the lockdown and COVID nineteen has it been tough? Yeah, yeah, like it has been. You know, everybody is everybody's in the same boat. So you, know, you take the advice from the government and you behave responsibly and um, just uh, get ready and be ready for when you know the the world is a safer place to open back up and um, provide a, a safe environment for people to uh, work out. Yeah, and uh, so last year, yourself and Paul Howard, uh, you wrote a semi-autobiographical book uh, called Gordon's Game. Now, what I find interesting is the fact the, uh, that you agreed to work with someone who made a career of making fun of you and your teammates for quite a few years. Uh, it looks like you paid the price for it with a few, uh, some of the stories told in the sequel. Uh, what's your view on it? Um, well, we wrote the book together, so um, you know, I I I I show Paul Howard to be this series with me, um, because he has a phenomenal uh, way of of writing, um, and um, I needed to bring this um, he could he could bring this story to life, and you know, it's it's been very very well received, and you said it is semi autobiographical, um, so this is all based on my experiences of when I was a young boy. Up to the weekly times and um, the challenges in rugby and the you know the highs and the lows and, uh, and everything and everything in between. Um, so it's been a really really exciting. There's another book planned uh, for next year as well. And uh, I know in the book you wrote about um, uh, women's rugby and you took part in the twenty by twenty campaign. Uh, do you want to explain to the audience uh, what that is and? Uh, why you yeah, think it's an it's important issue? Well, I think primarily because I have a young daughter now, and you know, I'm very aware that um, she needs to be supported into playing sport, 
right the way through um, her, you know, her, her uh, right, right the way through her life, really. Um, but the amount of women, uh, young girls that drop off playing sport around that uh, 12, 13, 14 years of age, so important that they continue playing sport. Um, so the 20, 20 by 20 campaign is about trying to increase the coverage and the uh, participation and the sponsorship in women's sport because the the, uh, the, the balance is, isn't, isn't quite right there. Um, so um, it was very important that this was a theme in the book, and you know, while the book is it's a rugby-based book, it's not all about rugby, it's about you know, having fun, going up in Wexford, and then uh, tackling some important issues like uh, women's representation and sports as well. Uh, important message we can all get on board with there. Um, now, Gordon, Jack and I would just like to thank you so much for coming on today, and we hope you enjoyed the interview as much as we have. Um, yeah, great. So we just let your final song, Dirty Paws, Dirty Paws by uh, of Monster the Men, play us out. Uh, before you go, would you like to explain your final choice? Um, just a, a yeah, I, I, again, um, I probably hate the most. Um, again, just uh, it was a brilliant, a brilliant album, and uh, I was kind of flicking through it and trying to figure out which uh, which song to which song to pick, and that was just a, that was probably one of the standout ones. Um, it was tough, tough. It was a tough piece to pick that. And uh, some of the leaders are tuned. Um, so two, uh, two really good, two really good bands. There's no, uh, no more. Yeah, once again, thank you very much. And My pleasure. To you and all our listeners, uh, goodbye. And uh, here's Dirty Paws by Monsters and Men.